This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Morning, Ray. That's better, isn't it? Great. I just realised I need glasses. I'm getting old. Could I just... Um, okay, while we're waiting, um, I just wanted to, on the back of the notices, just to uh, give another notice, and that was um, regarding, thank you, uh, regarding uh, the Sinfin um, Fun Day, which is on the 13th of July, so a couple of weeks away, and um, we've got a store uh, amongst many other stores there, and we're going to be there just to be a presence and, and let people know that Jubilee exists. Um, and that we love them and that we care for them. And we're going to take opportunity to, to bless the people in that, uh, in that area. So if you're around um, next, uh, sorry, not next, but the week after the 13th of July, on Saturday from 12 to 4 is when the fun day is, and you want to come along and just support us or be around and help out in any way, that's great. We're going to have some things that we're going to be doing with kids, some craft work, um, and we'll also be wanting to pray with people for anybody that wants any prayer about any situation in their lives and just offer them the opportunity to get prayed for. And um, so you're very welcome to come along and come and join us. And we'll be giving some flyers out as well. We'll be giving some prizes out and all sorts. So do come along. Bring a friend, um, and if, especially if they need prayer. And um, well, let's see what God does with that. Is that okay? Good. Lovely. Good. Excellent. Right. Um, I suppose we've got to start, haven't we? We're a bit late, really, uh, but never mind. It was good this morning, wasn't it, guys? Thank you for the, to, the, to the worship band, and thank you, Paul, for that word as well. And I think that sort of ties in with something that I want to say a bit later on. Okay, uh, we're going to carry on with our uh, series in Acts this morning, um, and we're going to be looking at Acts uh, chapter 19, verses 21 to 40. Um, so if you've got a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning with me to that or scrolling to it, That'd be great, and we're going to read through these verses, and, um, and then we'll see what God has to say, yeah? Okay, thank you, Father. Come, Lord Jesus. Right, verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his uh, helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, Paul uh, helpfully explained that Christians uh, in the New Testament uh, were known as the way. So if you were a Christian, they used to point to you and say, well, he belongs to the way. So that's what that means. Okay. So the disturbance about the way, the Christians. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you know and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, 
will be robbed of her divine majesty, as if that could happen. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in open sorry, so soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed to the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Praise the Lord. Where's my water gone here? We're going to pray before we begin. So, Father, we want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you that you are just an awesome God. And we praise you for the way that you love us and the way you touch our lives, the way that you make us whole and good, Lord, because you are good. And I pray that you will do us good this morning as we hear your word. I pray, Father, you'll help me to speak your word, Father, in truth, Lord, and in power, in Jesus' name. And may it change our lives, may it draw us closer to you when we understand more of you, in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen. Right, this passage that we're looking at today is dealing with a riot that took place in Ephesus. And it's very much a simple, short, historic narrative. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of doctrine here which you can really get your teeth into. However, the Holy Spirit can use even a simple uh, narrative like this to teach us some spiritual truths and principles this morning. And I'm hoping that um, we will do that this morning. When I, when I got this passage, I thought, oh my goodness, this is brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, but what do I bring out of this? And I was really, if I'm honest with you, struggling and thinking, Lord, what, what is it you want to speak to us about? So anyway, these are the things I came up with. I had all sorts of like, different permutations of how I was going to approach this. But I put three headings, basically, three points. So the three points are Paul's uh, success admits opposition. Paul's teaching admits idols. And Paul admits companions and friends. 
So those are three sort of like titles or points. When we look at the history of the church, we see the church thrives best when it is persecuted. History shows us that the church spreads and grows, and this was what was actually happening in the New Testament and here in, in Ephesus. So we begin with our first point, Paul's success amidst opposition. So Paul was on his third missionary journey, and the gospel was being spread, and it was having um, great impact. People's lives were being changed, the effect of which was changing their environment around them, the villages, the towns, the cities were being transformed through the power of the gospel of good news. The word was being preached, miracles were happening, signs and wonders and healings were taking place, and society was actually changing. How amazing is that? And that's the same God that we have today. He wants to be involved in changing people's lives. He is a God of miracles, and we've been singing about it this morning, but it's true. It's true. God is a God of miracles, and this is what was happening right there in Ephesus. The church was advancing And even though it had internal problems and issues, um, the church was not perfect in that day, and nor is the church perfect nowadays. But nevertheless, it was advancing in what God wanted to do in and through them. And it's interesting that we get a short account of the happenings that took place from an unbeliever's point of view, from a non-Christian, from an Ephesian, by the name of Demetrius. In verse 26, he says, And you see and hear how this fellow Paul... The blood, how dare he, has convinced and led all these people astray, numbers of people here in Ephesus, and practically the whole of Asia. Paul was on his third missionary journey. And we find him here at Ephesus, and he had been there, um, as I say, nearly for three years. And our narrative starts there, but before we begin, let's just take a brief look and have a little bit of an overview of what this place was like prior to what took place and what we've read this morning concerning the riot. So Paul uh, meets some disciples in chapter, the early part of chapter 19, and Paul spoke about this very elegantly last week, but just going to recap on that. So uh, Paul meets some disciples, he lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues and, and begin to prophesy. Here were these guys who uh, had heard about Jesus, maybe knew about Jesus, but they hadn't really experienced him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he prays prays with them, and they receive the Holy Spirit and receive power. Amazing. Then we read, Paul preached the gospel with great compassion and conviction, and he reached um, lots of people. And some of them believed, and others, others, others of them didn't. Those who believed, he taught for two years God did extraordinary miracles through the use of handkerchiefs and aprons. And and when people touched these, they were healed. These things seem way out there, don't they? They seem sort of, you know, how can it be? It it boggles our mind. We can't understand it. But the fact is, it's true. It's in the word of God. And it's true today. It is true today. When I'm on the streets, I'll speak to some people, and I'll share the good news and tell them that God loves them. Some people will accept it, and other people won't accept it. When I offer to pray for people, some will say yes, and some will say no. There's a woman last, not last week, the week before, I spent half an hour talking to her. We had a great chat. And at the end of it, um, we said, look, would you, she had a really bad knee, and she'd suffered with it. She says, no, I'm just going to carry on suffering with it. I said, but you don't have to. God can heal that. God can touch you. No, I'm all right. I'm fine. Some will accept, and others won't. 
Next uh, was the seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish priest, high priest, rather. Um, they were severely beaten up uh, by um, evil spirits um, when they tried to cast evil spirits out of, uh, of different people. And that just goes to show that if you try and do what Jesus did without, without knowing him, you can get in yourself into all sorts of trouble. And this whole thing had a profound effect on the people, and they were just gripped with fear because the name of Jesus was powerful and mighty and awesome and is a high regard and honor. And you can just imagine as some of these Christians were walking around in Ephesus, they'd say, oh, watch out for that guy. He's, he's, he belongs to the way. Let's get out of his way because he, he might pray for us or he might do something crazy. And our life might change. People felt the awesomeness of God in them days. But it didn't end there. Then we read about the sorcerers, those people who were probably involved with the dark side of things and with magic spells and other things, maybe the demonic side of things. And we find that they came to faith, that God saved them as well. God's not a respecter of anybody, any man, woman, child, etc. And he saved them. And what did they do? They burnt their scrolls. They burnt everything they knew about what was precious and they burnt it because they found something in Jesus which they never had before. So we see this radical change taking place. Then in the midst of all this, Paul makes plans to move to Jerusalem via Macedonia and Achaia. So God's at work. Amazing things are happening. People are getting saved. Miracles and signs and wonders are happening everywhere. And Paul decides to make plans to go. Why? It's a good question you may ask. I think it is a good question. But... Would you want to move? And God's moving like that and he's doing something marvelous and amazing. I want to stay right in the middle of it. I want to move. But here, he's making plans to move. And I guess one of the answers I have for that is that Paul knew that his time in Ephesus was up now and God was, going to call, God was calling him to move on to greater things involving other churches. But that's another preach. Okay, what happens next? Before leaving a massive uproar erupted, causing chaos, confusion, and ending in the riot that we read about. So Paul is still around in Ephesus when the riot took place. Before we look into this passage um, in more detail, let's first take a look at Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus besides all that took place prior to the riot? What kind of place was it? In the Roman uh, period, Ephesus was an important commercial centre Ephesus was the ancient city which rivaled Antioch as the third largest city in the Roman world. It boasted of a harbour, various civic structures, bath complexes, a theatre, and most importantly, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of the god of Artemis, or Diana, was famous throughout the Mediterranean world and attracted hordes of visitors from all over the place. Artemis is the name of the goddess in Greek, uh, but in the Latin, the Roman language, she's called Diana. She was a goddess of fertility. The religious tourists and visitors brought silver uh, models of the temple to take home as souvenirs. And this was a thriving place. It was a cosmopolitan city brimming with a life from all corners of the world and an ideal missionary gang. And that's why Paul was there. But then comes uh, the opposition in the form of persecution. 
So Paul worked in Ephesus longer than any other city. Paul was bound to be opposed sooner or later for the same reasons that he was always uh, uh, aroused hostility. And that was due to his preaching of the gospel and the demonstration of miracles, signs and wonders in the power of the Holy Spirit. He saw true effectiveness in his ministry and as a consequence, opposition in the form of persecution followed. This situation was nothing new to Paul, for he knew that the gospel would provoke and stir people's anger towards him and the church. We see this all over the New Testament. In Antioch, it was the opposition of personal prejudice and envy. In Lystra, he came against opposition of ignorant paganism. Among the Judaizers, it was opposition of ceremonial legalism. In Philippi, it was the opposition of angry sorcery. In Thessalonica, it was the opposition of political revolution. In Athens, it was the opposition of cultural hedonism. In Corinth, it was the opposition of philosophical skepticism. But here in Ephesus, it was an opposition of pseudo-religious materialism. These shrines were to bring good fortune, prosperity, fertility uh, to their followers. So we see Paul's success uh, amidst this opposition. On to our second point, Paul's teaching amidst idols. Our story starts with the main character by the name of Demetrius, who was the instigator of the, uh, of the riot. The silversmith, among many other manufacturers of silver shrines, uh, saw uh, great success in what he, he, he had made and, and, and obviously sold. And he was one amongst many other of, of those who were sold such items. But such was Paul's success that numerous people were convicted and came into Christianity. That the sale of these silver, silver shrines was declining to a point where the manufacturers and the sellers of these items were being forced out of business. That gives you the extent of what God was doing in that area. Dramatius complained in verse 27. He says, our trade will lose its good name. He was worried. Part of the reason for this decline was Paul taught in verse 26, man-made gods are no gods at all. Those who had converted to Christianity saw the foolishness of such commodities, which was fueling the decline of the cells for these manufacturers. There is little difference in our day and age. I guess one modern modern equivalent would be likely to be lucky charms, or good luck charms, or bracelets, or even necklaces that people wear. You can buy good luck charms for almost anything. Many people carry them around for various reasons, but I guess mostly to bring them prosperity, protection, and good health. Just to give you an idea, the following are a small sample um, of what, what these charms are, are, can do for you, or propose to do for you. So you've got good luck charms that will jump up, uh, jumpstart your love life. Not bad. You've got good luck charms that can ignite your lucky streak. Anybody feeling lucky? Then you've got good luck charms that can make your bank account soar. Like eyes, people's eyes waking up there. No, okay. 
And then I came across some other ones um, that have got particular names. So you've got Lady Look. So Lady Look, when you keep Lady Look by your side, the whole world smiles with you. Not bad. Then you've got the magic square. And it says this. You shouldn't enter a lottery contest or any game of chance without touching the magic square first. And you can, you know, I know people that, you know, have these like charms and things and they, and they believe in these, they're going to bring them good luck and they, they treat them so sacredly. Then you've got Lee Yun's temple and the opening sentence is, do you want to attract money like a magnet? Who doesn't? Yeah? And then it said, would you like to end financial worries? Question mark. With Lee Yun's temple, you can get whatever you want, riches, wealth, and abundance. There you go. Then just to finish off with one other. This is the Aztec Mantas weight loss amulet. For those who want to lose some weight, listen to this. Have you given up losing weight? Possess the Aztec Mantas weight loss amulet and prepare yourself for a life-changing experience. Now available in sterling silver. Amazing. All promoting prosperity. And then we know we have horoscopes, don't we? Those that propose to tell us our future. It is no easy, it's so easy for people to turn to such things. And it is one of the many ways in which the evil one seeks to draw people's gaze away from what is the truth. And Christians can be drawn into this too, if we're not careful. But the underlying factor here is that people are generally relying on such things as these to help them through life, to guide them, to secure them some kind of uh, future in terms of finance and prosperity. And many of the Ephesians lived this way, and Paul addressed this issue and spoke into this whole area especially in the lives of the, the new converts. And as we see clearly from Scripture, Paul taught against such things. Later in verse 26, sorry, yeah, 26, he says, the gods that made by, sorry, he says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. These were false hopes, false gods, false temples, false charms. Jesus was the only one who could truly meet the needs of the Ephesians. And he was able to, and he's able to meet our needs too. If we hold on to such beliefs and practices, we need to repent and follow the example of the sorcerers who got rid of all their scrolls by burning them, getting rid of them completely, and turning to Jesus and wholeheartedly relying on him for all their needs. In Philippines chapter 4, verse 19, it says this: And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of of his glory in Christ Jesus. If, there's, if there are things that the Holy Spirit is making us feel uncomfortable about this morning, is if you're listening to some things that think, oh, maybe I fall into that category, I encourage you to seek prayer about that this morning. As I mentioned earlier, the nature of the opposition was basically a pseudo-religious materialism. I don't believe that Demetrius... Um, was motivated by his devotion to the goddess Artemis, but rather more by his bank balance. This was the driving force behind the complaint and the opposition and the riot. 
Materialism is a strong force and we need to be aware of its power and effect on our lives to draw us away from God's plan and purposes. Please hear me right. God is not against wealth and blessing. He's actually the author of it. It comes from him. You know, God wants us to have good things. However, we do need to be aware that it does not take center stage in our life and push God out. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there your, sorry, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again in Colossians, the first three, chapter 3, first three verses. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ in God. So I guess the question and the challenge this morning is, where and on what is our hearts and minds set on? And only we can answer that. And maybe it's a question we need to contemplate. Materialism is a strong force in the world around us. It is a devious and cunning plan of the evil one to lead people away from God and have them preoccupied in the search of prosperity. The challenge for the Christian is to be aware of the subtle power of materialism and the lure it has and the potential it has to take us away from God. I've witnessed firsthand a number of Christians who have been sidetracked and become so preoccupied with the pursuit of wealth and possession that they've lost sight of God. And as Christians, we need to hold in balance our needs and our wants. If our wants cause us to strive to the point where we are expending the majority of our time and energy and effort in the pursuit of pleasure and things, then we become in danger of allowing this to become an idol in our lives. How then can we guard ourselves from this? Well, we read about it already. But we haven't going to read about it now. How can we guard against this? By seeking the kingdom first, not refusing to be manipulated by the media and advertising and those, those around us for the next gadget or thing or item or place we want to visit. This is what it says in Matthew 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We must learn to be content in Christ, saying no to those things that may have the potential to lead us away from what God's perfect plan is. Contentment is being satisfied with what you have and with who you are, not what you have or acquire. I'll say that again. Contentment is being satisfied with what you have and who you are 
not what you have or acquire. Contentment is an attitude we learn, and it's not a thing that we just achieve. And one of the ways we can do that is being grateful for what we have already, reminding ourselves of God's provision and goodness to us, and not holding on to things as though you know, we don't want to let go. When God asks us to give it, that will be the acid test. When you prize something really so much that, and God says, look, give it away, then you know where your heart is. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content wherever the circumstances. I know what it is to, to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, sorry, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I am sure that many of us here this morning can testify to God's provision and blessing as we have put him first. Let's make it our intention, our goal, to set our hearts and minds on things above, where Christ is seated. And as we do this, God will faithfully provide all the things that we need. So we pick up the story again, and the crowd has now gathered momentum and were led into the main theater. The two disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, were also hauled into the, the theater. The theater was a place where debates took place, disputes were settled, and lots of other things besides. And we see the ferocity of the crowd through the shouting and the chanting that lasted for two whole hours. Just imagine that. This was no small commotion. There was a massive uproar. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And verse 34. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The crowd was seriously angry and determined to get their message across. And there was uh, anger. And this was fueled further when they saw Alexander, a Jew, being pushed up in the forefront. Little is known about him, but the Jews had chosen him to be the man to represent them. Unfortunately, he was denied the opportunity, even though he had tried to address the audience. You see, this was a delicate situation. The Jews didn't want to see, be seen as the ones who were the cause of this disturbance and riot. So their plan was to push Alexander to the forefront to defend their cause. The Ephesians also did not want to be implicated as the ones who had started the riot, in fear of it drawing attention to them from the Roman rule at that time. Hence, in steps the city clerk to the rescue He's unnamed, and as an official of some standing, he had the authority and the persuasive ability to calm the situation down and bring some kind of order to the, to the crises. So what happened next? The crowd were calmed and dispersed. The reputation of both the Ephesians and the Christians and the Jews was kept intact. Our God is God. 
Here was such an explosive situation, going to get out of hand, and God brings peace out of it. If you, as a Christian, or even a non-Christian, are facing a trial, maybe you've been wrongly accused or misunderstood, I want you to take courage from this, this story and know that God is in control. And as you give your situation over to him, he will defend you, and he will even deliver you. So what was the outcome of all this commotion? Three things, I think. First one was, no official action was taken against the disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus, for, their, uh, for any wrongdoing or the church. Secondly, the church could continue to grow. It was blemish-free and maintained a positive testimony amongst the Ephesians. And thirdly, the situation was diffused by the clerk and the crowd were dismissed. And no further proceedings were taken, as we know. There are times when God will use unbelievers to support the cause of the gospel. Even though the clerk's motives may not have been entirely in favor of the gospel message, God used him nevertheless. And God will use his people in our lives in the same way. So we move on to our third point. Paul admissed companions and friends. It's worthy to note that Paul was more than willing and ready to step in on behalf of the disciples, but, this was, but, he, but it was the persuasion of the disciples uh, and the advice of his prominent friends that influenced Paul not to intervene. The prominent friends were high-ranking officials who were known as the Asiarchs. Um, they were the authority figures for that province and were responsible for the, uh, for the care of their province. Paul listened to their advice, which shows that Paul was willing to heed the advice of his Christian companions as well as those of uh, his unbelieving friends. God was able to use both sets of people to guide him. Paul, Jesus was... Um, Sorry, uh, so Paul, both sets of people were able to, to, to guide him and he listened to their advice. And God is able to guide us through other people that might not even know God. As I was reading this, I thought, this is, this is, this is amazing. Here is a man of God who's, who's preaching the gospel and he still had friends amongst those who weren't believers. And you know, that's, that's really encouraging and it's also challenging that as Christians we are called to be friends of those that do not know Jesus. And you know, Jesus is our ultimate example when it comes to friendship. He calls us his friends. In John chapter 15, verses 12 to 15, um, he says this, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. I wonder, do we have the type of friendships 
that Paul had with non-believers. The quality of friendship that values the person as well as the advice that was given them. I guess very few people have these kinds of friendships. This isn't something we should shy away from, but rather it's something we should pray about and seek God for. We as Christians should be modeling true friendship in the world. Where we, dem- where we can demonstrate the type of friend we, that is really sincere and trustworthy and loving without any agenda, simply desiring the very best for that other person. Now, I know you can't always do this with everybody, but maybe there is one or two that you can do that with, where you can get to know them personally and you can start to encourage them and love them and serve them. Just simply, no agenda. Just love them for who they are and be there for them when they need you. I have a long-standing uh, ex-colleague who is now retired, and I meet up with him every so often, and we talk and we catch up, we have a drink, we have a laugh, and um, we have a good time in general. Now, he knows that I, I love and care for him, uh, and I know he generally cares for me also. And when I'm with him sometimes, I notice that uh, when he's with his other friends, that he will step aside uh, from them, um, and he will begin to talk to me. And I guess this is because he feels he's able to talk and confide in me about things he would not be happy necessarily to talk to his other friends about, i.e. about how he's feeling emotionally, Oh, and in particular, how life is treating him. And I guess he feels that he can not only confide in me, but he knows that I won't judge him. Now, of course, my heart for him is to know Jesus. And we've talked about God and we've talked about salvation, but he's not ready to receive Jesus or accept him, which is sad. Because I know his life would be so much more enriched and blessed if he were to come know Jesus. But most importantly, God has called me to love him and be there for him. He's called me to be his friend so that someone um, that he can rely and trust on when when he, he needs somebody to talk to. And he's also called us corporately to have the same kind of friendship, to model the friendship that Jesus modeled for us. Maybe there's somebody in your sphere, your environment of influence that you can become friends with. Why not pray about that? Why not seek to to be a friend to somebody that, that needs true friendship and encouragement? My wife, B is really good at this and I know she's a real encouragement to me in her examples. And God uses her many, many times in this way. She just does her thing. She just encourages people and she, she loves on them. And they just can't believe that, you know, that a person could be like that. But God's called us to be like that. God's called us just to love, to give out. And we can begin to demonstrate what true friendship is all about. So in summary, Paul's success admits opposition. So what we see is there that corporate and personal growth takes place 
when we are opposed for preaching or sharing the gospel or being a witness. Don't take it to heart. Be willing to step out for God in the way that Paul and the disciples did. Paul's teaching amidst idols. We are to renounce all forms of idols, whether they be lucky charms, horoscopes, materialism. Instead, look to Jesus for all our needs. And Paul admits companions and friends. Do we have friends amongst both believers and unbelievers where we can demonstrate biblical-centered friendship? Seeking to be friends to them as Jesus is a friend to us, unconditional in our love. That's the challenge, isn't it? I want to thank you for listening this morning. And I just want us to be quiet before the Lord. And if God has spoken to you in your heart about anything, I just want to give time for you just to pray and just offer that personal prayer in your own heart and in your own mind right now. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Anything in our lives that is more precious to us than God has a potential to become an idol. Let the Holy Spirit just minister you to that. Father, we want to put aside everything. We want to look only to you. We want to seek your kingdom first. Thank you, Lord. Father, teach us to be those people who will reach out for you and be a friend to those who do not know you, wherever we might be, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you for your love, Lord, and your compassion. Father, we pray that you'll be with us this week, and as we go our way, that we will know your power, that we will demonstrate your power wherever we are, Lord. We thank you that it comes from you, and it's not of us. Help us just simply to be, Lord, your vessel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We think we're going to have one final song, are we? Or are we going to call that, call that a day? Okay, I think we'll call it a day because I think it's getting on a bit. Um, thank you for coming this morning. There is tea and coffee and refreshments just outside in the foyer. Do please stick around and help yourself to some goodies. And we look forward to seeing you next Sunday at the same time. Uh, and God bless and have a good week. listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk and come along on any Sunday morning.